Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. I am so honored and excited to have Elizabeth Liz Scala, who is Ellen Clayton Garwood Centennial Professor of English, and my goodness, wearing so many caps, graduate advisor, medieval studies, director of English honors program. Um, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love it. So Liz, um, before we get into you know, your, con- your moment um, right now, I wanna, I'd love for you to share, um, you know, what was it about, I don't know, what was in the water you were drinking as a kid that led you, I mean, beautifully to Wellesley and then Harvard, but more specifically, uh, this very deep interest in medieval literature and not just medieval literature, but medieval studies and what you call or others have called post-medieval studies, how this stuff is alive today. So yeah, take us yes. on your journey. Sure. Um, I, was a, I was a lonely, only child and I read a lot of books um, and, and was really interested in um, the Middle Ages, uh, you know, as a backdrop for uh, romances and, and various stories and Really love children's books that were illustrated with um, that kind of uh, medieval design. So a little stained glass, a little like, um, I don't know, uh, il- illuminated borders with flowers and birds and whatnot in it. That's like how I got into the medieval stuff. I mean, but really just the love of old books. So spent a lot of time in the library, uh, read a lot of girls series books was really into Nancy Drew that was like the big thing I remember when I was really young my mom tried to get me into romance you know romance romance didn't really work um but I I really liked historical fiction and so um I backed into being a literary scholar in a weird way I was definitely going to medical school as a um as a, a college student and as a, a and a high school student, I was big into math and science. Always loved reading. Thought it was really easy. Thought English class was really easy. Was a little boring because it wasn't very difficult. Um, and then I took a medieval lit class my freshman year of college for fun, and I thought it would be Arthurian romance. And it turned out it was literature in Middle English, which was difficult to read and kind of cool to listen to an older form of our language, sort of like Shakespeare, but different. And that very difficulty got me hooked on it. And I kept taking it for fun as my side hustle while I was switching my major around from bio to math to, you know, whatever to try to um, sort of stay a pre-med student um, and make my parents happy. And then, you know, somewhere in the beginning of my senior year, I just freaked out and thought I cannot, I I gave up medical school way before that, but I I kind of told them I would go to law school instead. And then I realized I didn't want to do that either. I really wanted to try to do graduate work in medieval literature. And I didn't tell them. And I just applied to to a couple of places for graduate school and got really lucky, got into a good one that I, and I wanted to work with somebody there. So that's how I, I got into that stuff. 
Wow, I love it. So, uh, I mean, my goodness, Harvard. Was there, um, who was the faculty or who is the faculty unit up you know. being most working with there? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you know, that's a story because I feel very fortunate to have gone to Harvard um, and it is really, it's very personal for me. I, uh, you know, it's it was dumb luck. It was really, really dumb luck, right? Wellesley is 12 miles away from uh, Cambridge, Mass, where Harvard is located. And I was uh, walking around frustrated my senior year uh, because I didn't have GRE scores. This was way back before they were online and you had to take them on paper and mail them in. And, uh, you know, like Johns Hopkins wasn't going to forward my application to the English department because I didn't have GRE scores. And so I, I walked into one of my classes where a Dante scholar was teaching and she said, Liz, what's wrong? You look upset. And I told her what was wrong. And she said, do you want to go to Johns Hopkins? And I said, no. And she said, where do you want to go to school? And I said, I want to go to Harvard to work with this guy named Derek Pearsall, who was a British scholar who was visiting for a couple of years there. And he had just decided to take the permanent position they offered him. And she said, you know, you should go there and visit, you know, my friend so-and-so who happens to be the uh, graduate uh, advisor. And I did. And she told, she asked me what I wanted to do. And I told her, and she said, you should go to his office hours. And I did. And it turned out he was on graduate admissions that year. And I met him and he remembered me and the rest is history. That's how I got, it was like, I, it was like the only school I got into. I got into uh, UVA, huge admissions, right? They weed down a huge admissions class and I got, and I got a scholarship to go to Harvard. And so I, had my dream come true through uh, the personal collections of uh, uh, connections of a small liberal arts women's college and like dumb luck. Dumb luck. Well, I don't know about dumb luck, but um, really, um, it, <laughs> I mean, there's so many, so many cool lessons to take away from this and ones that we share with our students all the time, which is, you know, don't, be afraid to kind of step out and reach out and make yeah. those connections. And anyway, I love it. I also love, by the way, that, you know, I mean, Nancy Drew as <laughs> a kind of formative text for you. And, you know, because what is Nancy Drew doing? She's like sleuthing out and figuring yeah. it out this stuff and yeah. kind of tough kid. I, I love I love Nancy Drew. Um and my good friend that I would read Nancy Drew with. Um, yeah, I mean, we couldn't get enough of Nancy Drew. Um, also, just your like ever inquisitive, ever kind of thirsty, hungry mind. You, mm -hmm. you got a, a certificate from the Macomb School of Business. You went out to Paris as a professeur invité. My goodness, Liz, um, so much cool stuff. Can I yeah. be you? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll trade with you. you. We can trade plates. That'll be fun. I would love to be Professor Latinx and teach um, teach comic books. That, I think that would be cool. I would be up for that. Well, speaking of comic books, so, you know, I, I will admit, yes, um, like many of us who took literature um, seriously and continue to take literature seriously um, today as professionals, you know, as an undergrad, I definitely you know, had my fun with Canterbury Tales and of course, um, Shakespeare. And that was, these were all at, at Berkeley. And I had Carolyn Dinshaw um, doing all of her kind of crazy, awesome, like, you know, I mean, I'm not talking desire. I'm talking like, you know, let's read Canterbury Tales through the lens of S&M kind of bondage stuff and what have you. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, my my question is, um, how does this stuff, you know, live on? Not just in maybe comics or you know, mm -hmm. sort of the sex pot that Heath, uh, Heath Ledger was um, in um, A Knight's Tale, but we can talk about those. But we could also just talk about your your own work in this space, which is so important and critical. Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to think if I really, I mean, I. I have written on um, a night, the film A Knight's Tale, and it's paired with Shakespeare and love. And I'm trying to think about um, the difference between the way Shakespeare and Chaucer are thought about in uh, popular culture, because I think Shakespeare is thought about a lot in popular culture. Chaucer much less so, right? As a as a figure, um, when I I know exactly what you're talking about um, in terms of reading, like the bio that I have up online about my interests. And I, um, I think part of the, this is the like traditional part of what I do. When I think about uh, my interests in the post, post medieval um, existence or the way in which these medieval texts still exist in the modern world, I'm definitely thinking through illustrated books. So a lot of times what I'm really thinking about are manuscripts that have survived the, a set of Renaissance imprints of Chaucer's work. Lots of, I mean, like what I used to tell my students and I wanted them to do is blow the dust off old books. So I like to send them to the Dewey Decimal part of the um, PCL where they need to um, pull out a Victorian edition or an early 20th century edition of the Canterbury Tales and look at the way that text was sometimes abbreviated, sometimes translated, sometimes expurgated, so the dirty bits were taken out of, but also illustrated, decorated, um, you know, presented to a then modern reader. So I'm, I, I do probably less work thinking about the 21st century, although that's not completely outside of the purview of what I do. Like, I do like to think about the way the Canterbury Tales are troped in modern novels. So I have this like unwritten essay that I really have to get to about The Handmaid's Tale, right? A Knight's Tale, like how many books and novels and films play on that, an old wives' tale, right? Pretending kind of to be a Canterbury tale because I, um, the argument of that essay, I'm just going to give it away on the podcast, right? The argument of that essay is that um, we think of the Canterbury Tales as being canonical, like Canonical literature, the traditional literature of the man that we are looking to escape from. But the Canterbury Tales were radical in the, um, in the day that they were produced, not simply for being written in English at a time when, uh, serious poetry was really still being written in French and Latin, but, um, because they were stories in some sense that should never have been told. They are stories from people that don't have the authority to speak, which is how all of those modern tropings, right? of The Handmaid's Tale. It's like the secret story of The Handmaid no one should really know about. That is what the Canterbury Tales originally were. So there's a kind of continuous interpretive action going on in using the idea of a, a whatever tale, a whatever's tale um, in, that, in that way. Yeah, I mean, that resonates so much with even the work that I'm so focused on more, right? I mean, you know, these are all the other's tales that are finally making, kind of becoming 
um, having it, having their day in and having their space. Um, yeah. So we're blowing the dust off old books. We're also in your your work, um, of course, very importantly, um, correcting some of, you know, the egregious mistakes or translations that have taken away so much joy in the Canterbury Tales, right? And I know that your very important, significant, the Canterbury Tales handbook um, that you published with Norton is really, you know, focused on, aimed at bringing students to the Chaucer, you know, to Chaucer's Tales and, you know, through language and genres, historical background and critical theory. Um, Yeah, I mean, is it's such a shame that well first of all i mean mid that this is a language that is at once familiar but also very uh-huh. you know foreign or different and uh-huh. that we lose the kind of beauty too of the craftfulness of the tales um in the translations yeah i mean i it's really funny right we're only in the very very beginning of this semester so i have uh i've been going slow with my students in my chaucer class which um i teach back to back with the taylor swift class and um having them you know work on their language skills and their ability to read and it is slow going right like they're better at home when they can look at the translation which i tell them to use and then when they come in and they just look at middle english like they're struggling with it but every day it is a lesson in why you cannot read the Canterbury Tales in translation, right? All of the jokes and the verbal sleight of hand, the double meanings that are alive in Middle English do not work in a translation. It just becomes this literal thump um, at the end of the line. So Chaucer sounds like he's often leveling stark criticism at a particular pilgrim because the translator is kind of making blunt what Chaucer makes playful and subtle through this naive general prologue narrator who kind of like doesn't really know who he's meeting and what might be, you know, wrong with, with what he's saying about them because he's so enthusiastic about everybody. So, um, you know, even this early in the second week of class, my students are already figuring out, even though they're struggling, oh, wow, like, this guy is really interesting if you spend the time to read him in his in the form of English he's writing. And he seems kind of like either a moralist or just a satirist or something a little more, um, I don't know, like staid and rigid if you tr- if you read him in translation. It like becomes all content and no um, subtlety of the form that is in his poetry. Yeah, I I can believe it. Of course, you are much closer and <laughs> you're the expert on this. Um, but yeah, uh, just thinking back to my time in the classroom with Chaucer, I can completely see that. Let me ask while we're on this topic, and then we're going to move back to language and Taylor Swift. But um, you are you are in your new book doing a lot to connect those Renaissance editions of Chaucer yeah. to Shakespeare. And mm-hmm. can you can you just I'm just really curious about that. I mean, I'm also really excited about what you are discovering here. That is such an interesting question because that book has been derailed so much over the last, I hate to say it, like six years. Not that everybody hasn't been derailed by the pandemic, right? But um that book was literally derailed because Norton needed the handbook to come out 
coincidentally with the new Norton Chaucer. So I literally had to stop writing the Shakespeare book. I was at the um, Folger Shakespeare Library in DC for a month. And I would, in the mornings, look at the editions of Chaucer that they had. Um, And then in the afternoons, when I got really tired, I would just kind of like close all the books and pull out my computer. And I started writing the, the Canterbury Tales handbook out of my head, right? Without an edition of Chaucer in front of me. I just sort of composed it as I would speak to my, as I would speak to my students because I had taught the Canterbury Tales, you know, for 20 years. It was really easy to just um, know how everything was going. So it got derailed for that reason. Um, and then it got derailed uh, a little bit because I started working on the transmission of Livy and his history of Rome in the um, 14th century. We have like evidence that Livy is somewhat being read in some form. We're not really sure. And that grows out, uh, but we don't have any manuscripts of Livy really circulating in the 14th century. We have a, an old French translation of Livy. People think it's slavish and not very important. And I think clearly it might be being used. So I started working on that. It, it emerges out of um, uh, the chapter on the physician's tale, which is a retelling of the story of Virginia being um, sacrificed by her father to avoid rape. Um, that's in, that comes from Libby um, in my book that came out in 2015, Desire in the Canterbury Tales. And that is like kind of mushroomed into this project that I'm doing with David Holt at Berkeley and Noah Gwynn at UC Davis. So we're editing and translating and I'm writing the introduction on this old French translation of these couple of parts of Libby uh, dealing with Virginia and Lucretia. Um, so that's kind of put the Shakespeare book on hold. And then this Taylor Swift thing has kind of taken off and is now making me think a lot about um, girl girlhood, the invention of girlhood and girl culture in the, um, since 1989. I mean, it's no accident, right? I have two daughters, one born in 97 and one born in 99. So they are the, you know, like OG Taylor fans. And I was just in the periphery of that and then kind of got on the train late, uh, you know, by cir- by whatever circumstance, but like got my head lit up. So that Chaucer and Shakespeare book has really been on hold for a, a good long time. And I'm waiting for, I, I think I need help, maybe help rebooting that project. I have an essay that came out from it in TSLL, um, but it's really... Uh, that book is going to be really about why I think Shakespeare is obsessed with Chaucer's Knight's Tale because I see it in so many of his plays. And because uh, if you go and look at the six editions of Chaucer published in the Renaissance, the trappings of this knighthood and knightly aristocratic identity get attached to Chaucer in the um, prefatory materials, the paratexts that keep get that keep accruing to that book and. So I'm going to think about how Chaucer gets presented to Shakespeare visually as more of a knight and an aristocrat than he really was, but through those paratexts. And then why Shakespeare is possibly alluding to um, the knight's tale, right? Which is a story of two knights in love with one woman in um, Two Gentlemen of Verona, his fir- one of his first plays. And then literally rewrites it with Fletcher as two noble kinsmen at the very end of his career as one of his 
last place. But I see it in Romeo. It's in Midsummer Night's Dream. Like it's just all over the place. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can't wait. And I, I completely know that kind of derailing or the having to put things on the shelf. Um, and, but then of course, waking up every morning thinking, oh my God, I've, yeah. you know, another month has gone, another year's gone. I've got to, I've got to pull that off the shelf. I've got to finish it. Yeah. Um, okay. So at Swifty Prof, Oof. um, yeah. you are, you're blowing it up, but let me, I want to ask you, um, what okay it's not just i mean a lot of us i mean i teach comics i you know i you know comic books and um comic book media and identities you know a lot of us ac across the country and lit departments you know are teaching popular culture as a way to bring students to those tough complex issues that we do with um say canonical literature if you will but there's something about your course that seems to be resonating beyond just a way of making sexy what we already do. And I just wonder, like, what, what is your sense of that? T taking a step back, I mean... Mm -hmm. What is it beyond just people being like, oh, there's this really cool course and this cool professor who's, you know, doing this course on Taylor Swift and, you know, um, early canonical literature. What is it? What, I don't know. What, what's your sense of this? My, okay. So like, you know, I think about this a lot because I keep getting asked really provocative and interesting questions by people, but also because and the people, it's not so much the interviewers. I mean, those are interesting. So people ask, asking me questions on Instagram or emailing me, right, at my um, university address. I think it's, um, they want a kind of vindication of their interests. Stu you know, people and especially students want a vindication of their, of their interests and their passions. And so, um, they are hyper enthusiastic about this idea of Taylor Swift course because for them, that's, that is poetry, right? For them, music is that kind of writing is what they really, um, deeply care about. And they want to see somebody take it seriously and somebody take them taking it, take, take, take them seriously, taking it seriously. Right. So that's where I think the, that power is coming from. I'm not really getting, you know, this sense of, oh, I'd get, to, I'd get an A in this class because I know all the lyrics. So I'm getting really interesting responses to the posts that I'm doing from the course, which are kind of interesting, right? Like split screen, Christopher Marlowe and Taylor Swift from the reputation era thinking about um, I was, you know, I was thinking about, and it really kind of came to me in the middle of the week teaching ready for it, that, you know, that that is a kind of seduction poem. Um, it's many other things too. People want to read this in terms of her biography, in terms of, right, um, how she's resisting this media image of herself. But it's also looking at it in hindsight, right, that she's thinking about starting a relationship with somebody who, you know, has to deal with what her reputation is in the media. We know this is the time of her life where she is meeting Joe Alwyn. She makes this analogy between Burton and Taylor, right? Burton to this Taylor, a British actor, kind of known for his traditional um, power on the stage. So like a little more kind of conservative. And then this kind of tempestuous, 
uh, tabloid, larger-than-life American actress. It, In hindsight, reading back through this, I'm like, this is not simply about her media um, identity and a resistance to her media identity, which you can say all of reputation is doing. This is the seduction poem, right? I'll be, I'll be the robber. You, you, you're a killer. I'm a robber. And they're not just metaphors that, and then that hit me to think about the passionate Christopher Marlowe's passionate shepherd, right? Where aristocrats are going out and playing at being shepherds and shepherdesses. And this is the pose of how you, you know, tell a woman that you, you know, want her is that you pretend to be a shepherd, you know, courting her and bringing her gifts from the natural world. And, um, you know, I think that that's, gonna, that people are like kind of interested that I can do this, that I can bring these things together. I think it makes them happy to see her writing and the things that she's doing in her writing taken seriously and their interest in her writing taken seriously, right? It's valorizing both of those and validating really both of those things. Wow. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. My brain's kind of doing all this popcorning right now um, with everything you've been sharing. What do you, what, what's in the ideal kind of world? um, And maybe you're already experiencing this with your students now that we're going into, I think week three. um, What do you, have you had any surprises already, you know, coming from the students and what do you hope they'll kind of walk away with after this course? Well, I, I haven't had that many, there hasn't been enough time to be really surprised by them. Um, you know, I am surprised a little bit. They're not all huge Swifties. Like some of them are there, they're kind of mildly interested in what's going on. So they're not, um, they're, and none of them are mindless about it. Right. But they are, they are, they, and they have definitely, because they're all honors students. They're from liberal arts honors. They've probably all done AP English or some version of it and studied literature at a high level. So at this point in the semester, it is really just getting traction on the depth of analysis between the song and then whatever else I bring in, because it's not. Uh, quite always a thematic connection. Sometimes it's really a connection through figures or the use of certain structures and they have to be a little flexible. So you have to do what you're going to do to the Taylor Swift song and then be a little meta about it, right? In order to then go over to the unrelated other piece of poetry and then do, you know, take that meta thing and then realize how to do it to the other the um the other work, Liz. You talked about your very early fascination with books that had kind of ornate illustration work. With the Swifty um, and early modern lit that you're doing this this course that you're doing this wonderful course that you're doing, um, are you also looking at kind of music video um, and you know as kind of paratext or as kind of illustrated? you know, book. Um, yeah. Yes, definitely. We are going to do that. Um, that comes up closer to the end of the semester. So, um, you know, right now I feel like the order in which I'm doing things is a little fungible maybe. And I did a lot of, you know, right now the first five or six weeks of class, right. is all about close reading and thinking about how to read really closely, right. It's a 314, how to use the Oxford English dictionary. Why, what is etymology and language origin? What is that? tell you. But 
you know, it tells you more than at this point in the poem, this is happening, right? Like what, so I'm going to try to teach them that. Toward the end of the semester, we are going to deal with all too well, right? And we're going to deal with that song in its five minute version. It's, um, Taylor's version, the 10 minute Taylor's version. And then, uh, we're going to look at a, a shorter music, just a music video and then all too well, the short film. And we're going to think about these modes of production and reproduction, the whole re-recording um, phenomenon that's going on. So I'm kind of saving some of the video stuff for the last, I would say it's the two to three weeks before Thanksgiving when we're going to, to get into that. Um, and we have some big, longer novels to read. We'll do a, so we're going to start, we start with poetry. We move to a Shakespeare play. We'll read Romeo and Juliet. Uh, we will then move to a novel uh, Du Maurier's Rebecca. We'll look at Hitchcock's film version of Rebecca. And then from out of that, we'll then move to visual forms uh, with the music video and such. Where can I sign up? <laughs> I, want, I want this course. Um, Liz, you're, you are, what can I say, definitely blowing the dust off old books. Yeah, and <laughs> um, I want to thank you. This was really incredible. And I know our listeners are going to be really excited to um, have l- listened to this and to have learned from you. I could see this, your course um, now and its future iterations, you know, as maybe another <laughs> another book that displaces the the Shakespeare Chaucer book, um, mm-hmm. but I could also see it as a, you know, a wonderful opportunity um, for a big class that might even, um, you know, we could put some resources into film so that those outside in the larger public could also um, be invited into the space of learning that you've created so beautifully. So yeah, thank you, Liz, for, for this. Thank you. I think that would all be much appreciated. So yeah, I'd love to talk more about that. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.